So the scripture today is from Romans 15, um, verse 30 through 33. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you so much that we can come together um, and praise you and worship you and learn more about you and what your word has for us. Um, I ask that you would bless this time and that your spirit would be working in our hearts to help us discern um, your word and that you would use Kevin to speak to us and to change our hearts and to use us for your glory. We love you and thank you in your name. Amen. You guys can be seated. You got to put the lights on there. Uh, thank you guys for being here this morning. Uh, if this is your first time, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's nice to see you guys. Um, before, we, before we get started this morning, um, uh, Brent, can we go ahead and throw that picture up there for me? Okay, he's working on it for me. Okay. Um, for those of you guys that have been um, a part of the church for a while, you may or may uh, not have had the uh, opportunity and the privilege yet to meet uh, Mario and uh, Ketty Escobar. Um, they've been at the church pretty much since the really early days, probably um, over five years now at this point, or at least five years heading into about August or September of this year. So they've been around for a long time. They've been really uh, faithful partners in ministry, and um, they have three awesome kids, one little boy and two little girls. And so um, this, this past week, I, I'm, I'm sure some of you guys probably saw this in the news. Um, uh, there was a police officer down in Orlando who was responding to a domestic dispute call and um, got shot in the head. And the bullet passed through his head and lodged into his temple. And that officer actually is Mario's brother. Um, Mario wasn't just a brother to Kevin, though. He was more like a father. Um, Kevin's father was absent, and Mario is significantly older than Kevin is. And Mario practically raised Kevin until about age 15 until um, they, he kind of shared duties with some close family uh, friends uh, in the area who ended up kind of taking uh, Kevin in and adopting him. Um, so here's the crazy thing, right? Um, Kevin took a, a, a gunshot to the head and as of right now, survived. Um, so we're praising God for that. It's a, it's a miracle that, that he survived surgery and he has, has made it through that. Um, but he still has a long, long way to go. And so th this morning, here's, here's, here's my request for us, that, that we as a church would take some time this morning to, to gather together and to pray for Kevin, pray for his doctors, pray for his wife and two young kids. He has two little boys, one is eight months old and the other is five years old. Um, and then that we would pray for Mario and Ketty as well as they're trying to uh, be there and support the family and support um, Kevin's wife 
and children and yet are still grieving everything that they've gone through. So um, if you feel led to pray with someone near you, you can gather together and pray together for him. Pray for Kevin's healing. Pray for uh, the doctors as they make decisions for him. Uh, Pray for the family that they would be comforted in this time. Uh, Pray that the swelling in Kevin's brain would continue to reduce. Really, in reality, um, we were told Thursday that if he made it through the next 48 hours, he had a very, very strong chance of survival, and it, it looks like he made it through that worst kind of part on Thursday, Friday, and, and into Saturday. Uh, but we need to continue to pray uh, that the Lord would do something miraculous. So if you want to pray uh, individually, feel free to do so. Uh, if not, if you want to pray with somebody near you and do that as well, um, that's fine. Uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come down here. I'm going to step off the stage. I'm going to turn the lights down. Uh, we're going to pray for probably three, four, five minutes, uh, just asking God to move. And then I'll come back up here and we'll, we'll dive into the sermon. Thank you guys.
Heavenly Father, um, we, we come to you needing you desperately. And Lord, we do all the time, but in the midst of the reality of mortality and all that has happened to Kevin and his family this past week, Lord, we, we recognize that need for you. God, first and foremost, I thank you for sparing Kevin. And ask that you would continue to do so. That he might recover. And Lord, that he would glorify your name for sparing him and healing him. Father, we ask that you would give special wisdom to the doctors and medical care team that is overseeing him. That they would make wise decisions with his care. I pray for Mario and Ketty as they're trying to be a rock and a hard place for Kevin's family in this time while still grieving what has happened to their brother. I pray for the kids who don't even understand the magnitude of what took place this past week. I pray for the woman who lost two children and the gunman's two children as well. God, it's times like this when we stare in the face of evil and all we ask is why. And yet we're reminded of your promise to us that you are making all things new and you are coming again. Lord, may we not lose sight of that. May we not lose our hope in you. And so may we continue to sing your praises And Lord, by faith, we're trusting in you to do a mighty work in Kevin. Lord, that you would heal him, that you would restore him, so that he might be the husband and father you've called him to be. We're trusting you to continue to perform this miracle that you've been performing, and we ask this all in Jesus' good name. Amen. Thank you guys for praying. Uh, I appreciate it. I know Mario does as well. Um, coincidentally, if you are if you are free tomorrow um, and want to go with me down to visit, um, you'll, you feel free to catch a ride with me. Uh, Mario's asked that anyone that's available would come down and just grab lunch with him and pray so you can get a ride with me, see me after church. I'd, I'd be happy to to take you with me. But if not, please continue to pray for them. Um, it's very still touch and go at this point. Um, as you can probably imagine, the doctors are not offering a ton of hope, which they're kind of like in the position of doing. It's what doctors are, are paid to do. They, they work in statistics and facts, and they work in um, figures and prognostications, and yet, in reality, it's a complete miracle and defies a lot of medical science as we know that he's even alive at this point. And so we'll continue uh, to pray for him and for the family. Thank you, guys. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 15. Uh, that's where we're going to spend our time this morning as we worship God in the Word. And uh, as you're turning over there, I got to thinking as I was reading through the passage this week and preparing that, that over the years, I've read a lot, and I mean a lot, of books on ministry. And I, I found a lot of them to be helpful and encouraging. Uh, in seminary, I, I read countless, I mean 
countless books, some of them good, some of them not very good, um, some of them helpful, some of them not very helpful. I, I read books on church planning. I read books on spiritual warfare. I read books on how to study the Bible. I read books critiquing methods on how to study the Bible. I read books on evangelism. Um, I even read a book detailing various methods on how to conduct a funeral service. That's how in-depth some of my seminary classes were. And as I got to thinking, I was like, I'm grateful for these resources. I really am. Um, Many Christians over the course of the last 2,000 years have, have lived through and experienced various things, and they have a lot to teach us. Um, I've been greatly encouraged by books on prayer by some of the, the fathers and, and stalwarts of the faith over the years, like Ian e. Bounds and Andrew Murray. Um, I've been encouraged by devotionals. Um, Oswald Chambers has one of my favorite devotionals of, of, of all time. I'm, I'm indebted to some of Bonhoeffer's work on Christian ethics and how to think through how we engage life around us as a Christian and follower of Christ. The reality is, though, that is that time and time again, as I spend time with God in his word, I'm reminded that the most important information we need, though, comes directly from scripture itself, directly from the word of God, directly from what he has revealed to us and what he says to it. There's no replacement for what we can get from God's word to us. Think about it. Over the course of the last several weeks as we've been working through this second half of the book of Romans, we've seen Paul share a myriad of things to us and in his attempt to encourage us and influence, and, but ultimately what he's been sharing with us is the reality of what it looks like to live as the church with changed lives of what God has done for us. He's both encouraging us, but he's also giving a charge to us, right? He's encouraged us to love our neighbors well, to love our enemies, and even in the midst of that, to love our church family. And he's even encouraged us on a really timely topic, in my opinion, on how to remain unified as the body of Christ, even when we have differences of opinion with one another. When there's issues that we don't see eye to eye on, if scripture is not abundantly clear on those, God says that we lay down our preferences and we still choose to love one another. And ultimately, and we saw this last week, and this is so important, his major reminder of why we do ministry in the first place, why we gather, why we love, why we sing, why we uh, take money for the poor, why we do anything that we do as a church is centered around one thing, worship of him that we love, that we serve, that we use our spiritual gifts, not because we are commanded to do so, but because they are acts of worship unto God himself. And so there's, there can be no substitute for scripture. There can be no substitute for seeing the deeper things and gleaning from what God says to us in his word. And this is why our text this morning is so important. This is why what we see Paul sharing with us is of such importance because we see both great encouragement but also a charge and a reminder of what is the church supposed to be doing? What what should the church be focusing on as we gather as brothers and sisters trying to worship God? What is our call? 
I think we can get lost in the minutia of arguing over what this looks like, especially if you're like me and you've read every self-help or every church ministry strategy book that has been published the last decade, at least I feel like I have, that everyone's got it figured out. Everyone who, did you ever notice that anyone who's ever written a book knows everything? They've got it, they've got it completely figured out, and if you just read their book, you will be just like them. And at this point, I'm not like any of the people's books that I've read, and I don't think our church looks exactly like any of those ministries, and yet there have been things in those books that have been helpful. But it's no replacement for what God asks of us in his word. Over the years, I've seen people debate and argue over what the church's primary function should be. It's been interesting to see what that argument is, right? And it usually centers around one of two things, primarily, primarily, right? Either they say, oh, the church's primary job is to be preaching the gospel and declaring the good news. That, that the church shouldn't be doing anything else. The church shouldn't be engaged in politics. The church shouldn't be engaged and primarily worried about uh, social issues or social justice. It shouldn't be worried about any of those things. It should only be worried about the gospel and proclaiming the gospel, and that's it. And seeing people uh, profess faith in Christ, that should be the only thing that the church is worried about. And then you have the other camp who says the primary thing the church should be doing is participating in social change for the most vulnerable. That they should be living in such a way as putting the gospel and the good news of what God has done on display practically and tangibly. And I think the text this morning is going to give us some insight into this because what Paul is going to do is he's going to encourage the church at Rome by talking about his own ministry. He's going to claim to them, hey, here's what I've been doing. Here's why I haven't even visited you as a church yet and write you this letter. And yet when we look at that, we're going to see that Paul places a primary focus on both sharing the gospel, but also allowing the implications of God's grace towards us to move us to action in a tangible and real way. Because believe it or not, I think the charge of Scripture is not just to preach the gospel or not just to see social change happen, but to live out both. And to do both to the glory of God and worship of Him. All right, so look at Romans chapter 15 with me, starting in verse 14. He says this, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. All right, so, so I, I wanted to finish with that last little part because the, the verse 15 kind of continues one thought into verse 16. But it's important to see verses 14 and verses 15 as connecting pieces to everything that Paul has said in, in chapters 12 through 15. That, that what he's saying is to love our church to love our, our church family, to love our neighbors, to love our enemies. We do this not because it is a command, but because we worship God. And because we want to worship God, we live unto him in loving others. That was everything that he said up, up through chapters 12 through 15. And so when you get to verses 14 and 15, 
is Paul's way of relating to the church at Rome by saying this. Look, guys, I get the standard of love that I have just presented in these chapters is difficult and not easy to follow through on. I get it. Paul's like, look, I, I told you to love your enemy. Not, not something that the average human being is going to be pumped about doing. I've told you that in the midst of matters of personal disagreement within the church, to lay down your own preferences for the sake of your brother and sister. That takes work. That takes a conscious choice and decision to love somebody. Paul says, look, when I tell you to love your neighbor, I'm not just talking about the people that are easy to love. I'm talking about those that are difficult to love as well, anyone that you come in contact with. And so Paul says in these two verses, look, I, I get that this is difficult, but let me encourage you. Right, and he shares three things there in those two verses. He says first, right, he is satisfied and confident in their desire to follow Jesus. Right, he says, he says this, I myself am satisfied about you, brothers. He's, encur he's encouraged by the church. He's like, look, I get this. You guys love Jesus. You're trying to live this out. Hey, I'm not, he's not demanding perfection of them. He says, look, I'm not writing you because I'm mad at you and you're, you're bringing shame to the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm writing you to continue to encourage you to live this out. That I'm satisfied by your love for God, but don't rest on that. Don't think that you've arrived as a church, but, but continue to live out the implications of this grace in your life. Continue to pursue God, and in that pursuit, love others well. And he believes they can actually do this, right? That's the second thing he shares there, right? He says, I am convinced that you're able to instruct one another in this. Meaning not only is he satisfied that their desire is to live unto God and, and to love one another, but he's also convinced that they're able to actually disciple people and teach this to one another. He's like, look, I'm, I'm writing you, and I'm encouraged by what I see, and I see you discipling one another into this, and I want you to continue to do so. And then lastly, he says this, right? Although he's, Paul speaks boldly about how to love one another well, he shares all this and says, I, I'm sharing this with you because this is God's appeal to his church. It's a reminder, again, of why we gather and do ministry in the first place. Right? Paul's like, look, I'm not some expert on church planning, and therefore you have to listen to my words. He says, this is God's desire for his children. God's desire for his children is that they would love one another well. To, to his glory, and to worship him, right? He says that I write you very boldly as way of reminder because of the grace of God given to me. That he wants them to know of God's grace towards them. That this is God's will for his church to love one another well. See, Paul shares these two verses with us because as a church, we tend to see commands in Scripture in one of two ways. And neither are sufficient, by the way. Right? When we come across a, a command or a directive in Scripture, what we tend to do is we see that command. So we'll say, let's say, love your enemies. We'll see that command and we'll look at that. And, this, and here's how we tend to, right, as human beings, respond to that. 
right? One, we'll look at that, and we're going to pursue that command with fervor and commitment and vitality. I'm going I'm to love my neighbor well, and I'm going to do everything I can to, to be a, a, a great neighbor, friend, and example to Christ for that person. And so we resolve to, to do these things, but we lose the reason why in the first place. That our acts of service and obedience to God are an act of worship. And we turn these commands from being an act of worship unto God to being an act of worship for ourselves. We become functional legalists. Oh, look how obedient Kevin is. Look, look how oh, obedient uh, Brent is. Right? And we hear that and we do these things and we work all the more not to the glory of God, but to keep our own image in plain view of everyone around us. Right? I used to joke with friends when I was in college that, that we live life as Christians as if there's different levels of Christianity and that you can, achieve, you can achieve and attain them over the course of time, right? But if you're not being a good Christian, you get pegged down a couple of levels. And we would joke back and forth that these types of things were happening. But the reality is, is that functionally, many of us live that way. That is, that if we are obedient to the commands of God in Scripture, Life will somehow be more fulfilling. And Paul says, look, the grace of God has already been given to you. Obedience to him at this point is an overflow of worship and thankfulness to him for what he has done. And so in living out these commands, right, Paul says we, we, we live to worship God, not to, to pursue the commands with fervor and vitality for our own glory, and, and the other way that we, we, we err, because some of you guys are like, I don't do that, Kevin. Right? I don't become a functional legalist. I would argue that you probably tend to err in this way. You see the commands as burdensome or heavy, and so you ignore them altogether. Or you cheapen the grace of God given to you and don't pursue obedience. And when you do this, you miss out on an opportunity to grow in holiness. You miss out on opportunities to grow in faith. And you miss out on a chance to see God move in you and change you. One of the things that I've found over the course of time, as I followed Jesus now for over almost 14 years, that as I've grown in obedience to Christ, what's gotten better is not my obedience, but my faith and trust in him has increased because I've seen God's faithfulness in the midst of some of my lowest and darkest hours. And guess what's been there in the midst of those failures? God's grace. His mercy and his forgiveness extended to me was still there and it drove me to repentance so that I might live for him. See, Paul says, Roman church and, and us as well, Jesus died for you because God loves you and chose you. He chooses to love us, and we can choose to love as he loved us. And he says to them, I believe, church, in your ability to do this because of the power of God that resides in you. 
Because the Holy Spirit resides in every single believer. If you're a follower of Christ in here this morning, this is true of you. The Holy Spirit resides inside you. And that is the power of God unto salvation and to perform and obey and worship and honor and glorify him to eternity. And in that, Paul says, look, God has done this for you. And I'm encouraged by the work that I see in you, but I'm also encouraged by what God is going to continue to do for you. And it rings true for the church at Rome, but it also rings true for us. God's not done yet. It wasn't as if once Paul died, the church ceased to live for God's glory. For the last 2,000 years, God's church has continued to increase and grow. And God's people have continued to share the good news and see God's will done here on earth as God reconciles all things to himself. That we live unto his glory. And so Paul says, be encouraged to live this way unto God. And then what he's going to share from here on out is going to encourage them to imitate him. He's going to say, hey guys, look, I believe in you. I believe in what God's doing in you. And here's my encouragement to you. Imitate me. Imitate how I've lived unto God and you will see God work in you. Look at verses 16 through 21 of chapter 15. He says this. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not, while, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So Paul says here in verse 16, right, if you want to imitate him, right, and know what his entire kind of chief goal in life has been, he says this, I have one goal in life, and it's to see the gospel shared with as many people as possible. That's it. He doesn't care about his 401k, he doesn't care about which private school his kids are going to get into or whether they're going to be the next scholarship athlete at Duke. He doesn't care about landing the big promotion. He cares about one thing. The glory of God being displayed to those that don't know him. He says, that, that's what my life's about. And specifically, he says, right, the, the, goal of my, the goal of his ministry in particular, right, is to the Gentiles, right, non-Jews, right? He says the offering of the Gentiles. If you remember back, right, he said, when he says the offering of the Gentiles there in verse 16, he's, he's reminding us to remember something he said all the way back in Romans chapter 12. Will you throw those two verses up there for me? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. 
Right, look at what he says. This is his charge to the church. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as what? As a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That is, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, right? I, or if you remember back to that section of scripture, one of the things I said there is that Paul is referring to the Old Testament uh, ritual of temple worship. When he starts talking about sacrifices, and there was two types of sacrifices done by the temple priests. One was an atoning sacrifice for sin, that you would sacrifice uh, uh, an unblemished lamb to atone and ask for God's forgiveness for your sin. And every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer this sacrifice for the entire nation of Israel. That's what they did. Well, Paul's not asking us to offer ourselves as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Why? Because Jesus has already done that. And if you don't believe me, read the first eight chapters of Romans. Paul's abundantly clear that it is only because of Jesus Christ's, Jesus Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection, and his substitutionary death on the cross for your sin, that your sin is atoned for. And that in raising to new life, God offers you new life as well, ad adopting you as sons. That is the promise of Romans 1 through 8. So Paul clearly is not talking about that particular type of sacrifice. So what was the other sacrifice then? It was, it was called a burnt offering. And what you would do is you would go and visit the temple, and depending on your means, you would offer an animal. If you were of low means, you would offer some doves. If you were well-to-do, you would offer a ram or a, 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 a lamb. And what you would do is you would take that into the temple and you would offer it as worship to God, just thankful for him. And you offered it as a sacrifice saying, God, you have given this to me. I'm giving it back to you because of all that you have given me. Whether I'm of low means or great means, I'm giving this back to you, showing you that in my heart, I love you, I worship you, and I'm thankful for you and what you have done. And so when Paul gets to Romans 12, he says, look, the time of temple worship is over. The new burnt offering is you living unto God and worshiping him. That you offer your very life as a living sacrifice unto God to worship him. This means, right, that Paul is saying his worship unto God is his passion for sharing the gospel with anyone that does not know who Jesus is. Anyone that has not known Christ as their Lord and Savior and King, it is Paul's burnt offering to God to make sure they hear the gospel. And he will lay down whatever preferences or rights he may need to, to be able to do so. Church, to truly be the body of Christ, 
we have to be making disciples. We have to be sharing the gospel with people that do not know who Jesus is. And I don't mean know about Jesus. I mean knowing him as Lord and King and Savior, knowing that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. That is our charge. Not just that people would have some head knowledge of God, but that they would know him as Father, that they would know him as Savior, that they would know him as Redeemer, that they would know him as King and as Lord. So we can continually ask ourselves this question daily for as long as God would have us remain on this earth. What am I offering to God as a living sacrifice? The answer should be your life. Whether it's your musical gifts, your administrative abilities, your service, your ability to teach, Whatever gifts and talents and abilities God has given you, that is what you are to be using as you serve God and sharing the good news with others. If that sacrifice is not being used in such a way as to share the gospel with somebody, you are missing out on worship to God because that's what all this is tied to. Guys, worship to God is just not singing some songs. It's not just prayer. It's not even coming to church and just hearing a message preached out of the Bible. It's living unto him so that the glory of God is displayed both to those that already know him and encouraged in that, but also to those that don't. Have you guys ever thought about this? If you, if, how many of you guys have ever read the book of Acts? Okay, a good, a good portion of you. If you haven't, I would encourage you to read it. It's a great book. Basically, the second half of the book of Acts is all about the Apostle Paul and his missionary journeys throughout the Roman world. He just moved from city to city to city to city planting churches and, and, and telling people about Jesus. That's, just, that's basically the book. And one of the things I've always thought about is, do we know why Paul was so successful as an evangelist? Obviously, God had gifted him, right? God had gifted him to be an evangelist and, and given him a specific call and a special gifting. But you, do you ever think about this? Paul wasn't such a great evangelist because he was uh, the best apologist. It wasn't as if Paul had uh, Ravi Zacharias' ministry to teach him all these different things, right? It wasn't as if uh, Paul had gone to some sort of special school Right, to be the best evangelist that he could be. Seminary didn't exist the way that it does now for us in the U.S. Yes, Paul was educated. Yes, Paul had grown up Jewish and, and, and knew many things about God and his word. But the reason Paul was such a successful evangelist was because of his passion. He shared what God had done for him. He shared how God had done it, and he shared why it mattered. You ever notice that? When people saw Paul, they knew he believed what he was talking about. There's this one story where he's before an entire city, and he's disrupted the entire city by, by trying to, to, to basically get rid of the idol worship in that city by proclaiming the gospel. 
and the people that are in charge of the, the temple and the idol worship, they say they don't like it, right? So they, they, they don't like Paul preaching the gospel, and so some of the Jews as well in the city, they bring Paul before kind of the, the Roman uh, council in that area. And they're like, this guy's creating a disruption. He's telling us not to worship, worship Caesar. This is a problem as if they wanted to worship Caesar, right? They, they weren't interested in doing that either. They were just interested in getting rid of Paul. And as they're sitting there, Paul demands this counsel as a, as a Roman citizen. And as he stands there before them, right, the, 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 the counselor is sitting there and he brings the, the king of the Jews there before him and the, and the king of the Jews there and he's like, Paul, your great understanding has caused you to go mad. They see Paul preaching the gospel with such fervor and they see such a deep commitment to Jesus in him that they see that he's willing to lay down his own life. And guess what? They're not converted in that moment. But their response is, Paul believes this. I don't know if I do, but Paul, he's sold out to this. He loves God. He is convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. He is abundantly convinced that Jesus came and died and rose again for his sin and rebellion towards God. There wasn't any doubt about that. They didn't know whether Jesus was actually the Messiah or not, but they weren't questioning Paul's faith. That is why... Paul was such a good evangelist. You know, I used to work in banking, and one of the things I actually miss about just working at a, a, a regular job out in the workforce is the opportunity to put on display what I actually believe in an environment that's not surrounded by church people. Now, don't get me wrong, I love you guys. But most of you guys kind of have this expectation of what a pastor is supposed to look like and say and do. And when I worked at this particular credit union up in Virginia, right after I graduated college, there was maybe one other follower of Jesus in that branch. And over the course of time, I, I, I got promoted. And one of the things that I did when I, pr I was promoted is I completely changed the way I interacted with my employees or who the previous person was. Right, our branch stayed open crazy wild hours and, and we only had like, like a, about half the staff we were supposed to have on the front line. And so everyone hated working the early hour or the late shift, everyone. And one of the things I did immediately is I put myself in the rotation for the crappy shifts. And then one, my boss is like, you're the, you're the boss, why would you do that? And guess what I got to do? I got to share the good news with her. I said, well, it's, it's, it's my belief that my God did everything he asks me to do, and he served me. And I wanna, I wanna mimic and honor him. And so I'm not gonna ask my employees to do anything I'm not willing to do. And so if they have to work the crappy shifts, I'm gonna work them with them. And that way we're in it together. And we're serving and doing what we need to do together to get this done. You know what that led to? More opportunity to, sh to share the gospel with her. Because she knew I believed in what I claimed to believe in. Paul says our goal is to worship God and in worshiping him that inevitably leads to preaching the good news to others. And in that 
preaching of the good news, it will inevitably lead to changed lives in other people, right? He says that he would preach the good news to the Gentiles so that they may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Right? If you become a Christian, and we've discussed this before, if you really are a follower of Christ, you will change. You will. I don't care if you want to or not. If you don't want to change, don't become a follower of Jesus. You will. And the, the Holy Spirit will convict you of sin. Some of you guys are sitting there, I've been a Christian for a long time and I still struggle with sin. I can guarantee you God has still done a work in you. If you are really a follower of Christ, I can guarantee you that he is drawing you to repentance and putting sin to death. You may be resisting it, but God is doing a work in you. And he will see it through. That's the promise of scripture. If you don't want to change, don't start following Christ. And so Paul says that his goal, right, is that in evangelism, people just don't make some mental assent to the existence of God or Jesus as the Messiah. But what? That their lives would be changed. Why? Because they're going to move from worshiping themselves to worshiping the true God. One of... The, the, the goal of evangelism, the goal of the church in sharing and proclaiming the good news is to see lives and hearts changed from a heart that worships self to a heart that worships God. Can I share a fear that I have for the, uh, of the church with you guys? And I think we're, we're still seeing some of the, the hangover of it and, and cultural Christianity as we would call it. Much evangelism that I see, and, and to be honest, even evangelism that I have participated in and done myself, is centered around getting someone to pray a prayer or submit mentally to God, but to not really submit their heart over to him. And so what we do is we get a bunch of people to make an altar call or to pray some special prayer, and what they think they've done is gotten out of having to go to hell. Guys, the gospel doesn't get you out of going to hell. It gets you God. It gets you him. Now, good news, God's not in hell. But you get God. That's the good news of the gospel, not that you are saved from hell, but that you are saved to God. You get to be with the creator of the universe. The guy who spoke all this stuff into motion. The guy who knows the number of hairs on your head, which for me is decreasing year by year. I get to know him. I'm not just freed from spending eternity in hell. I'm freed to know my creator. And guys, listen, yes and amen that we can get people to pray a prayer to accept Christ. Yes and amen. I'm not, I'm not against that. But go to Matthew chapter 28 with me. These are Christ's last words to his disciples. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if you were about to say your last words to somebody, do you think you would probably say something important? Like if you know, like, this is the last time I'm going to say something to this person, what are you going to say? Right? If I'm about to die and I'm on my deathbed and Jackie's there at my side, I'm not going to be like, hey, what was the score of the Redskins game? By the way, I already know they lost. Okay. No, I'm going to remind her one last time of how much I love her. What a great mother she is. What a gift she is to me 
and our family. I'm going to share the important things of what I want our kids to know about how much I love them. Right? And look at what Christ shares with his disciples. He looks at them and he says this, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. By the way, just so you know, if, you ever, if anybody's ever heard this line, I was ranting about this with Sam the other day. If Jesus were alive today, he would do this, right? Anybody ever heard somebody say that, right? Because some of you have, some of you haven't. Hey, Jesus is alive today, and he is doing this. He has all authority in heaven and where? On earth. He's alive, guys, and he's reigning as a king. We don't need to think about what he would be doing. He's doing it. And we also don't need to put words in his mouth, right? Because look at what he says next. In this authority, here's my charge to you. Go, therefore, and by the way, in case you've never known this, the Greek there is very interesting. When he says go, that should be translated probably more so this way. In your going or as you live your life. He's not making some special charge to, to fly to China tomorrow. He's not making some special charge for you to have to go on a missions trip immediately. He says, as you live your life, make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to what? Observe all that I commanded you. Change lives, obedience. And then look at his promise. I am with you always to the end of the age. See anything about an altar call there? See anything about someone standing up in front of a large group and praying and then asking you to raise your hand if you accepted Christ? By, by the way, again, I, I sound like I'm, I'm not saying that those things are wicked or evil or wrong or the people that do that type of ministry are wrong in doing it. But if you do an altar call or if you make a charge for people to pray to accept Christ in a large crowd and they raise their hands, the charge for you is not just to see that hand raised, but then to walk with them and make disciples of them, teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded. The call for us as a church in evangelism is to see lives changed as we follow after Jesus. And as we are discipled and know Christ more, we share that with others and they come to know him as well. And so Paul says, my entire life has been centered around evangelism. And evangelism is not just proclaiming a message, but it's making disciples who lives, whose lives are changed. And guess what? If we do that, look at what happens. Look at verse 17 and 18. Look at what he says back in Romans 15. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what? What Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. 
It's led to worship. It's led him to worship, and it's led others to worship. That's what evangelism does. The most amazing thing about obedience to God and obedience to the commands is that when we do it, people are saved and God gets the glory. That when you share the good news with your life, with your words, with your deeds, and you spend time in the word with others and you pray with them and you teach them what it means to follow Jesus, the church doesn't just grow because the goal of the church is not to just grow numerically. It's so that more and more people might worship Jesus. And disciples, as they experience Jesus, experience life change, then they share that with someone else. And then that person knows the heart of, the per- that, of the, that person that's sharing the good news with them. And they see that God has designed them to follow him. And guess what? That's attractive. Guys, in my story, I studied every major world religion before I came to Christ. And I read apologetics books. Do you know what the greatest witness to me was during that probably 12-month journey that I was on? Seeing God change the life of my sister. Seeing her faithfulness and her love for me and her love for Christ spoke far more than any apologetics book that I read. Far more than any debate I watched over the existence of God. Because I couldn't argue with what God was doing in her life. And when I would ask her what was going on, guess what she would say? It's God. I love him. It's what he's doing in me. Want to know him? Want to go learn about him? Want to know what he's done for you too? Because it wasn't just for me. God used her life. And her worship to change me. And all this is so that God might save his people and bring himself glory. That's the goal of the church, is that we would gather together to worship him and in obedience, follow after him, sharing the good news in spirit and in truth, and in so doing, make disciples that are gonna glorify and obey God and just continue that cycle for the rest of our lives. And hopefully one day, when we die, the ministries and churches that we're a part of will keep going because they're gonna keep making disciples. They're gonna keep talking about the glories and excellences of Christ. You ever thought about this? We are the spiritual children of the early apostles. Think about that. A bunch of uneducated fishermen in Palestine. We're their spiritual heritage. Think about that, that's crazy. And if God so wills, there may be people thousands of years from now that are our spiritual heritage because of our faithfulness and our worship unto God. Now, Paul says why, you know, why we exist. We exist to worship God and sharing the good news, seeing lives changed so that more people might worship God. And then in verses 22 through 29, he just shares briefly on how he did that, right? Look at verses 22 through 29 with me. He says, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. So he's never visited Rome, he says. I've never visited you guys, and yet I'm writing you guys this letter. And then look. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, 
and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessings of Christ. Two things I want you to see there. And this should solve any ministry debate you ever have on what, sh- what we should be doing. Right? We see that the goal of evangelism is to see lives change that worship God, which leads to more evangelism, which leads to more lives changed to worship God. And Paul says, in that evangelism, right, where is he going to go? He's going to go to Spain. Why? Because there's a great need there. There's actually people that don't know God there, and he's going to go to them. Right? We should actually spend time with people that don't know God. Pretty, pretty simple, right? And when Paul would do anything, right, the first thing he would do whenever he'd go into a new city, right, is he would go and preach the good news to, to the Jews. He'd go into the synagogue, and then once he had done that, he'd go out and he'd start talking to Gentiles. And he would preach the good news to them where Christ had not been named, as he says in verse 20. And he's strategic, right? He goes to influential places. He goes to cities like Macedonia, in Illyricum, in Jerusalem, right? Places where he did ministry. And he makes a mark with the people there and then he moves on and starts new movements in new places. But I want you to notice something else here, right? Because he's talking about how he's going to these places and his desire is to go to Spain to preach the gospel, to plant more churches. But what does he say he's doing before he goes to do that? He's going to Jerusalem. Why? to deal with the social and material need of the saints in Jerusalem. Because God has commanded us to take care of one another as well. And because of the grace given to him by God, the undeserved grace that God has shown him, he is going to help the saints in Jerusalem. If you are familiar with that story in Acts chapter 11, apparently a famine had hit Jerusalem and there was a great need there. And so the churches in the Roman world gathered their resources together and did what? Sent them to Jerusalem and help. So here's what Paul has shared in about seven verses about what he thinks the church should be doing when it comes to displaying the gospel. Preach the gospel and meet the needs of the least of these. If people are poor and vulnerable, we meet their needs, and especially within the body of Christ, we meet them and we also proclaim the good news. It doesn't have to be just one of them. Paul, quite possibly the most influential evangelist the church has ever seen, did both. So can we. That the gospel is both preached by our proclamation of the good news in word, but is also preached by our actions. This is why simply sharing with the the gospel message is not sufficient for the church. And this is why clothing the poor and hungry is not sufficient in and of itself for the church. If you are cold-hearted and mean and unwilling to help others but are are sharing the gospel, guess how effective that's going to be? 
Why would anybody want to follow your God if that's the way he's changed you and made you to be? What's, what's attractive about that? But guess what? Just serving others and not saying anything about Jesus is also not going to do anything for them. No one ever came to Christ because you mowed their lawn for them while they were at work. You ever think about that? Like people say, like, ever hear that statement, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, lose wor- uh, use words? You guys know how I feel about that. It's dumb. Stupid. Please don't be caught using that sentence. Think, think about this for a second, right? Let's, let's take that statement to its full logical conclusion. No one has ever said, right, because you gave the homeless guy on a quarter a dollar, I bet that guy knows Jesus. Can I know him too? It's not how that works. It works in conjunction with you knowing them and proclaiming what God has done in your life that that happens. And in seeing that, both your actions of displaying what God has done must be followed up by your words. But your words also need to be followed up by action. That God asks for both of us. You must strive as the church to both meet the felt physical realities of those in need, but also their spiritual needs as well. I remember a couple years ago, a friend of mine was going on a medical missions trip to Africa. And when she got back, I was like, how was the trip? Like, what, what did you see? And she's like, oh, it was amazing. Uh, we got to do all these different things. And we were, you know, we were providing s- clean stitches for people. And we were doing some dental work for them. We were doing all these amazing service things for them. And I'm like, that is like so awesome. I'm so glad that you're gifted to, in, in medicine to be able to meet these needs for these people. And I said, so like, wh- like what did that lead to? She said, well, what do you mean? I was like, what, you know, did you... Did you share why you were there? And she's like, well, I was there to serve them. I said, yeah, yeah, but why were you motivated to go do that? She's like, well, God, you know, what God has done for me. I said, well, did you share that with them? I said, she's like, no, no, we we didn't share the gospel with them. We didn't didn't do any of that with them. That that isn't how the the organization is set up. I said, you shouldn't go with that organization again. I said, "You, you did a great job of meeting some physical needs for people. You've made them more comfortable on their way to hell. Harsh, but is there, anyth- is there anything untrue about what I just said? No. Kevin, you're, you're mean. Sometimes the truth is real. Sorry. I mean, I hate to break it to you, but like, you know, like, you had the opportunity, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to meet people from another country who were so thankful for what you were doing for them. You could have shared why you were there and that the gospel had motivated you to be there and you missed out on that opportunity. Now I have enough faith in the sovereignty of God that if he wants those people as his sons and daughters, he will save them. Because it doesn't shirk our responsibility. The sovereignty of God is not an excuse for you not to obey. And God says, in our proclamation of the good news that we imitate Paul and Paul both met the needs of others but he also proclaimed the good news of what Christ had done as our Messiah, King and Lord. 
And so here's, what I want, here's how I want us to finish. Because here's what Paul's basic kind of final charge is here in Romans 15, and then when, we'll see next week in Romans 16, Paul's basically just wrapping up the letter. It's like, I love you guys. But here's how he's finishing up kind of his final charge to the church at Rome. He's like, look, I have not come to see you yet in Rome because the gospel is more important. The proclamation of the gospel is more important than me coming and spending time with you as committed brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, it's more important that I've gone to these cities where Christ is not preached than it is to come to you and encourage you. And as much as I may want to come to you, I'm laying down my preferences of coming to Rome and seeing you and being encouraged by you so that I might go to these cities, that I might go to Jerusalem and meet these needs, and then I might pass through on my way to Spain, but my goal is Spain so that I can preach the gospel. How might our world look different if we as the church were willing to lay down our preferences and freedoms so that others might know Jesus? I think drastically different. It's why the church grew like wildfire in the first couple centuries. Because brothers and sisters in Christ that we will spend eternity with laid down their preferences, laid down their rights and their desires so that others might know Christ. But here's the thing. Right? Because the tendency to this morning will be to walk out of here and see this and have some great charge to be this amazing evangelist when you leave here. And I and I want that, by the way. <laughs> right? The, the, the entire room should be excited for people who are excited to share what Christ has done in their lives if they're believers in here this morning. Look at what Paul does. Because it doesn't start, by the way, with resolving to be a better Christian or to be a better evangelist. Look at how Paul ends chapter 15. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me, what? In your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. It starts with prayer. That's where it starts. Nothing gets done without God moving first. And he just, he just says to them, he says, guys, won't you strive together with me? Do you guys know that when, when you pray for somebody, it's never a waste. It comes alongside them. I have friends and missionaries all over the world that I pray for daily. You guys know that those prayers are a part of the work that's going on there? I had a friend that just got back from Spain and there were certain times of the day that I committed to praying for him and he messaged me one day and said, hey, this just happened during this time. Thank you for praying during that time. God rescued me from this situation. God saved this person. 
it's real, guys. Prayer is real and it is powerful. And Paul says, pray for effective ministry. Pray for open doors and a lack of persecution and pray that God's peace may be with us as we take the gospel to places where it's never gone before. And so here's, here's my request of you guys this morning, okay? I want you to leave and resolve to be sharing with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with your friends, with your, with your classmates, with who, your customers, whoever it may be. Right? I, I want you to share the good news. I do. I want you to be sharing the gospel. If you want help on doing that, we, we will help get you trained to do so. There are more than enough resources out there, though. None of us are, have an excuse to not be sharing our faith. And almost all those resources, by the way, guys, are free. So if you're like, I, I don't know how to share the gospel, you can learn in under 15 minutes. It's super simple. But more importantly, you need to share your life and how God has changed you. Your testimony is part of that. And other people seeing that. But here's my request for us this morning, that right now as a church, what we would resolve to do. That we wouldn't just resolve to be evangelists and, and live in such a way that as we worship God, this, this cycle is happening. I, I believe that to be happening, but I pray that we would start with this that we would commit to praying for ministry here in Gainesville, and not just even our church, but for other churches as well. Guys, do you know that here in about, let's see, today is June 17th, and roughly eight weeks, 10,000 new students will roll into Gainesville. 10,000 people between Santa Fe and UF. And that's just students. There's going to be grad students coming in, doctoral students coming in, new faculty coming in. There's people moving here for job opportunities. People working at Shands in North Florida. That as Gainesville grows constantly, there are new people coming in. And we have the opportunity to share the gospel with them without even having to leave our city. You're like, oh, I want to go to the nations. Guess what? There are international ministries here in Gainesville. There are people from all over the world that come to this city to study and get a degree. And while they're here, they want to meet Americans. And if you'll be a friend to them, you'll get an opportunity to share Christ with them. And guess what's going to happen? They're going to get a degree here. And when they're done getting that degree, guess what they're going to do? They're gonna go back to their home country and if they come to know Christ while they're here, guess what they're gonna do when they go back? Share the gospel. And you never even have to leave Gainesville to make an impact somewhere else. But it's gonna involve us praying that God would open opportunities for us to meet these people when they come to Gainesville, these men and these women who are made in his image and likeness. We pray to God that he would open doors and that those who are against the church here, that their rules would not come into effect to hinder ministry. That we would pray for encouragement as we minister, just like Paul asked for them to pray for his encouragement as he's discouraged at times. That we would pray for new leadership to rise within ministries in Gainesville, including in this church, and that ultimately God would be glorified. Would you pray for that with me this morning? As we take communion, and we, if you're a Christian here this morning, when we're taking communion, we're worshiping God and thanking him that he poured out his flesh and blood for us. 
And as we take communion, we're thanking God for what he's done. But then when you come back, would you pray? Would you sit and would you pray? And would you ask God to open doors to encourage us in ministry, to raise up new leaders, including you, to lead and disciple people so that more people might come to know God and that in that lives would be changed and God would be glorified. Let's pray that God might move. Heavenly Father, thank you that we don't have to invent new ways to do ministry, (laughs) that we don't have to try to figure this out on our own, that you've already given us the blueprint that we would meet needs of others and preach the gospel to others and share about our, how our life has changed and as we grow in obedience to you, put that on display for others. And God, might you use that to save people. To rescue people who do not know you as their God and King. God, open doors. Encourage us, Lord. There are times where we can labor and it feels like it's in vain. God, may we remember that it's never in vain to pray and strive for your glory. And Lord, might we see more people become your disciples and as they become your disciples, might they grow in obedience and see their life changed and worship you. And might our numbers at Aletheia Church grow, not so that we have more numbers, but so that we might give you more and more glory, honor, and attention because you are worthy.